Remain standing for our gospel lesson and sermon text from Luke 2. I'm just going to read the first 12 verses today. Again, submit yourself to the gospel of God. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So, so all went to be registered, every one to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold... An angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we need your help in understanding and believing and doing your word. Please grant that to us today, yet again, as you do so faithfully. We ask this for the sake of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Well, back in Luke 1, verse 5, the chronological marker for John the Baptist's birth is... The reign of Herod the Great. Remember that? In the first verse here in chapter 2, the chronological marker for Jesus of Nazareth's birth is the reign or the census and reign of Caesar Augustus. And the the mention of these rulers is a painful reminder that Israel was still in captivity. What they didn't recognizes that their captivity was more spiritual than physical. John would later be put to death by Herod's heir, Herod Antipas. Jesus would later be put to death by Caesar's appointed governor, Pontius Pilate. And at the end, uh, beginning and end of Luke's gospel, the Romans are doing the two things that their subjects hated most, taxation 
and crucifixion. Caesar Augustus was known for his peace, right? The so-called peace that he established, that he accomplished for Rome and for the empire, for the world. Uh, The people referred to him as their savior. One inscription even calls him the savior of the whole world. Augustus was the world's Lord and Savior. He even achieved the status of God. Uh, When he died, the Romans comforted themselves by telling themselves that Augustus was a god and gods don't really die. Well, there was peace in Rome, but it was a dark peace. And you couldn't say a word against it without fearfully looking over your shoulder. The citizens of the empire had settled for the counterfeit salvation of their counterfeit God and Savior. A false salvation offered to them by their false God and Savior, Caesar Augustus. The allure of counterfeit salvations and counterfeit saviors is as strong today as it was then, as it's ever been. We're still overly attracted to power and riches and beauty and position. We're still still suckers for advertisers who who suck us in. They, they, They suck us in by presenting us with competent, strong, good-looking people who are obviously somebody's and don't you want to be like them or to be in their group human beings are notorious for looking for salvation and peace for comfort and joy for meaning and purpose in all the wrong places we we equate prosperity and ease with salvation and those who can make us prosperous and comfortable in this world we exalt as saviors If we had a choice between casting our lot with Caesar Augustus, the emperor of the entire world, and casting our lot with the lowly newborn king, so-called king, lying in a feeding trough in Bethlehem, well, left to ourselves, we would cast our lot with the merely human world emperor every time. The real Savior doesn't always appeal to us. We aren't always drawn to Him, attracted to Him, because He isn't flashy or domineering or proud. The real salvation isn't what we naturally run to because it often looks more like defeat than victory, more like death than life, more like shame than glory. What we're looking for in a Savior is someone who looks like he will be able to save us by outward appearances. What we're looking for in a salvation is something that looks and feels like it will save us. And the last thing we'd ever expect God to do is become a servant. We like the idea of Caesar becoming a god. 
That's a story we can get into. But why would a God become human? And yet the good news is not that Mary's son is a Caesar, a man who would become God. He's a far greater wonder than that. And it's actually the other way around. He is God become man. And because Jesus Christ is the God-man, he can sympathize with men and he can save men. This unlikely story, the gospel story, a story that we would never think of because it's not the way we think. It's not the salvation that we would concoct in our heads if we were writing the story is the source of our comfort and joy. It's where we find the sympathy that we're looking for and the salvation that we need. Because Jesus Christ is the God-man, because God became man, because it went in that direction, because that's the direction that the story took, the God-man Jesus can sympathize with you and he can save you. When God became an infant, he became your your only true sympathizer, your only true Savior. Luke 2, verse 1 says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this is in the year uh, 4 B.C. Now right away, Luke sets up a comparison between Caesar's worldwide lordship and the lordship of the newborn in the feeding trough. The one that the angel will declare in just a minute to be Savior, Christ, Lord. Caesar, the most powerful man, powerful man on earth, will unwittingly fulfill the divine purpose of the true king with his decree. His decree will be the means by which God fulfills the prophecy in Micah 5.2. What's Micah 5.2 say? That's, you remember, the, remember Herod gets his, his theologians you know, together. Where, where's the Messiah going to be born? Well, they go to Micah 5.2. It's going to be in Bethlehem. And God uses the most powerful man on earth to do his bidding, unbeknownst to him, unbeknownst to Augustus. In the New King James Version, Verse 2 says, the census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. Other translations say something similar, like the ESV, for example, says this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. I want you to note that word first, okay? Um, Now, this verse, verse 2, contains one of the most, if not the most, famous difficulties in all of Scripture. Bible skeptics love this verse because to them it contains an unreconcilable historical error or contradiction. The problem, you see, is that this Quirinius figure, he's well known in history, and he's not the governor of Syria until... The year A.D. 6. No one disputes that. It's undeniable. And that's about a decade after Jesus was born. So Jesus was 10 years old 
when Quirinius first took office. Can you see the problem there? Luke says here that the census that brought Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem took place while Quirinius was in office. So it appears that Luke got his historical facts mixed up. But this problem only exists in our translations, which all tend to translate this verse the same way. Uh, the, The key word that needs to be translated differently is the word first, which also very often means before, and more naturally here means before, not just because of the historical context, but because of the grammatical construction. In, in, in fact, some English Bibles include a footnote that verifies what I'm saying here. Uh, th- again, going back to the ESV, it has a footnote suggesting that the word before is another way of translating first. And so, so in that footnote, um, the, the ESV translation committee, they offer an alternative translation. And this alternative translation is correct for a lot of reasons, some of which we'll, we'll go into. It says, this was the registration or census before Quirinius was governor of Syria. Do you see how that works? So it's not the first census or something like that, which really is hard to even understand what that would mean uh, since there's not a follow-up, there's no second census. Um, but it, it was the registration of the census that took place before Quirinius was governor of Syria. So, so Luke isn't referring to the local census that Quirinius decreed when he was governor. He did, he did decree one. But Luke's referring to the empire-wide census that Caesar Augustus decreed before Quirinius became governor. Now, okay, so you may be wondering, why in the world did this... You know, maybe that's a clever explanation to get around a, a problem, but why in the world would Luke bother to mention that Augustus's census took place before Quirinius's, uh, or before he took office? Like, what's the point? Isn't that sort of a random way of dating Caesar's census? Actually, it's not random at all, because when Quirinius was ruling over Syria and Judea, Again, that's 86, when Jesus was 10. He ordered, Quirinius ordered a notorious census, a a census that was far more well-known at that point in the first century than Caesar's, you know, routine census. In fact, Quirinius's census census uh, uh, caused a major rebellion in Judea. The first century historian Josephus, writing several decades later, even says that this rebellion against Quirinius's census that he imposed on Judea, it marks the beginning of the Zealot movement, according to Josephus. And the Zealot movement ended up um, becoming the, the revolt against Rome that, that climaxed in the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, a few decades after this. So the revolt against Quirinius was led by Judas of Galilee. 
And we know Luke was aware of this revolt because he wrote about it explicitly in Acts. Remember, he's talking about these would-be messiahs. Actually, Gamaliel is, but Luke is recording it. In Acts 5.37, he says, Judas of Galilee rose up in the day of the census. And, and Gamaliel's talking about the, the census of Quirinius. Judas of Galilee rose up in the day of the census and drew away some of the people after him. So that's in A.D. 6. So this census of Quirinius and the revolt that it incited were well-known events, important events in the first century. And Luke shows us, both in his gospel and in Acts, that he's quite aware of these events and when they happen and what they mean. Luke's readers also would have been familiar with the infamous census of that, that Quirinius ordered in the year 86, but they wouldn't have been as familiar with the less controversial census that Caesar Augustus ordered 10 years earlier that didn't cause the sort of revolt or rebellion. People just did it, as we see Joseph and Mary doing. So Luke, the historian, provides a chronological signpost uh, he, you know, they didn't have years you know, in, the, in the year of such and such. He's, he's giving us the chronological signpost. He tells his readers that the census that took Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem took place before the controversial one by Quirinius. And there's some other reasons that Luke might have been interested in doing that that we won't get into. There are also some technical linguistic reasons why before is a better translation than first in this context. And if you're interested, we can talk about that some other time. But for now, I'll just say that translating it before Quirinius was governor not only makes the most sense historically, it also makes the most sense grammatically in, 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 in the syntax of the sentence. All right, let's look at verse, verses 3 to 5. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. The Romans permitted the, their citizens to register in their hometowns uh, any time during the year of the census. So we, we, we shouldn't imagine that Bethlehem was overrun by people because of the census. What's important for Luke is Jesus' connection to the house of David through Joseph and through Bethlehem, which was prophesied to be the place of the Messiah's birth. And that verse says that he would be one who there would be one who is to rule in Israel. This is Micah 5 2, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Luke keeps in the forefront of our minds the promise given to Mary. The angel told her back in Luke 1, verse 32, the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. Augustus' decree causes Jesus to be born in Bethlehem. Caesar inadvertently does the bidding of the true king, the true Lord and Savior. And even, even Luke's initial readers, remember Luke is writing this, in the, sometime in the second half of the first century. And his readers knew what we know, that the reign of Augustus ended with his death in A.D. 14. But the reign of Jesus will have no end. 
So verse 6 says, So it was that while they were there, while they were in Bethlehem for the census, the days were completed for her to be delivered. Now look at that verse carefully and notice what it doesn't say. You'll notice that the text doesn't suggest that Mary went into labor as they were arriving into town. She went into labor after they had been in Bethlehem, it says, for days. And after all, if, you know, think about how insensitive, how inconsiderate it would have been for Joseph to take Mary on a trip to Bethlehem when she was virtually nine months pregnant, knowing that they would be arriving into town as she was due, or worse, possibly going into labor before they got there. Um, Actually, what verse 6 indicates is that Joseph and Mary had been in Bethlehem for days before Mary went into labor. While they were there, it says, while they were in Bethlehem, the days were completed for her to deliver. And so the scenario we should imagine is, you know, Joseph taking his wife Mary while she was pregnant, but maybe going a little early uh, and expecting to spend some time with family members down there. And, And so they got there and then staying with family somewhere in a house somewhere. Uh, she, she ended up going into labor, and they had the baby before they went back. Uh, that would have been the plan. Obviously, that got derailed too. But, so they were staying there until, until she had the baby. Uh, so we're kind of maybe, uh, hopefully, not uh, debunking any, any uh, nativity uh, stories that are near and dear to our hearts, but we have to, we have to stick with the text. And the text just doesn't, doesn't have this... Uh, this story, this dramatic story of them barely arriving into town when she goes into labor. Verse 7, And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them. Okay, here's another one. There was no room for them in the guest room. All right. Uh, The word at the end of verse 7 never should have been translated in. Joseph and Mary weren't looking for an inn to rent. Uh, Again, they had been in Bethlehem for days, and naturally they would have been staying with Joseph's family members. Uh, An inn is not even what this word means, as as we'll talk about in a second. But this this mistranslation is one of the most difficult ones for modern translation committees to correct because of the idea, this, this idea that there was no room in the inn it's just become fixed in our, in our nativity imagination. Uh, the inn and the innkeeper are fixtures in our retelling of the nativity story, in our plays, uh, in, in our movies, and, and things like that, in our books. And yet it's not what the word means. The word is kataluma, and it means guest room. It, it refers to the guest chamber of a normal house. That's just how it's used all the time. Uh, For example, this same word, kataluma, is used in the Gospels to refer to the guest room or upper room where Jesus and his disciples ate the Last Supper. They go find a kataluma somewhere where they can eat. So it's sometimes translated upper room, sometimes 
guest room because typically the guest room uh, was the highest room in the house. It, it can be called the upper room. So, so the fiction of a heartless innkeeper who turns away Joseph and Mary, the laboring Mary, is a, is a fantasy that distracts from Luke's point. Luke is saying here that there was no room in this guest room of the house where they were staying. Perhaps, perhaps another out-of-town guest who outranked Joseph was already staying in the guest room. Perhaps Mary's perceived immorality uh, caused them not to get the best treatment or what we might expect a pregnant woman, the kind of treatment she might get otherwise. We don't know, but they had to stay, for whatever reason, in the lower level room where the animals were brought in at night and where the feeding trough was. Very, very common in the homes in, in that day for there to be a room where at night you would bring in your animals. You didn't leave them out. You brought them in. And that's where they would stay and eat, and then you'd take them out the next day. What's important for Luke is that the infant Lord in Christ is wrapped in bands of cloth and laid in a feeding trough. The angels are about to tell the shepherds that this swaddled baby in the manger is a sign to them. The sign is connected to Isaiah 1. Isaiah 1 verse 3 says, the ox knows its owner, and the donkey knows its master's manger. Same word there. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. That's how Isaiah opens up his prophecy. The people don't understand. They don't know where to get their food. They don't know God as their manger, as their source of nourishment that's that's what isaiah is lamenting now in the town of bethlehem seven centuries later in a room where animals are kept where they eat and stay at night there the true manger the true food source has been made known he has manifested himself God has become an infant. Through this child, God will feed his hungry people. He will feed you and me the food of eternal life. That's where you can find it, right there. It's in the feed trough, in this little house somewhere in Bethlehem, in the stable, in the room where the animals stay, is the food of eternal life. Twice we're told that Mary wrapped Jesus in swaddling cloths here in verse 7 and then again down in verse 12. Though Jesus was divinely conceived, conceived by God, by the Holy Spirit, these swaddling cloths remind us that he shares the lot of all mortals. This points to his humanity. At the end of his life, the dead body of Jesus, you remember, it, w- it was wrapped in a linen shroud of death and laid in a tomb. And here at the beginning of his life, his living but mortal flesh is wrapped in cloths. And Mary wrapped each arm and leg, mummy-like, and she laid him in a feeding trough. 
just as mothers do. No other baby born into the world that day would have had lower prospects. I mean, he was born in an animal room. Didn't have a bed. The Son of God came into the world not as a prince, but as a pauper. The one who told Job, I made thick darkness the swaddling band of the sea. Now lay wrapped in swaddling cloths like every other newborn. The wonder of the incarnation is that the all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere-present God became an infant. Just like the ones in our congregation. The Son of God became a real man. Not just someone who appeared to be human, appeared to be a man. He had a real human body, like yours. A real human mind, a real human will. And he shared all our human weaknesses, except, of course, that he was without sin. The mystery of the incarnation is that the infinite God became finite man while remaining infinite God. That's the mystery of the incarnation, that the infinite God became finite man while remaining the infinite God. The mystery is beyond earthly analogy. And if, we, if, we're, if we're not careful when we come up with analogies, explanations, we can get into heresy real fast, right? It's beyond human analogy and beyond Beyond human understanding, in many ways, we can begin to grasp at it. We can, we can know more about what not to say than to say sometimes. But ultimately, we can't, it's beyond our, our, our ability to, to plumb its depths. It's unfathomable. The eternal Son of God subjected himself to his own creation. That's part of the mystery. And, and all of its physical laws. Why did he do that? But, but not only did he do that, he subjected himself, I mean, he could have come down and, and stayed aloof still, right? But he subjected himself to a groaning creation that was plagued with sin and death and suffering and curse. And he got right in the middle of it. He didn't avoid any of it. He stayed unstained by sin, but he didn't, he didn't avoid any of the suffering. Jesus experienced normal brain development. Mary watched him grow in his use of reason, his acquisition of language. He learned things in time that he didn't previously know at a different time. He crawled before he could walk. And he walked as a toddler before he learned to walk as a man. He got sick and he hurt his, he smashed his thumb you know, with his hammer, things like that. The, the only difference is that Jesus did his learning and his maturing sinlessly. But that doesn't mean that he learned everything instantly, you know, the first time. 
apart from normal human processes. To make ends meet, Jesus had to learn to work as a carpenter from his earthly father, Joseph. Paul puts it poetically in 1 Timothy 3.16. Without controversy, the mystery of godliness is great. God was manifested in the flesh. Justified in the spirit. Seen by angels. Preached among the Gentiles. Believed on in the world. Received up in glory. That's the whole gospel story there. From incarnation to ascension into glory. God became human so that he could sympathize with you and so that he could save you. Consider Christ's astounding capacity for sympathy. Uh, Do you know about the phenomenon of sympathetic resonance? Maybe some of you musicians know about how that works. If you have like two in-tune pianos in the same room, and you strike a note on one of them, the same note on the other piano will respond slightly. It'll, it'll physically resonate, even though it's not being touched. Okay? Uh, you can do something similar, I hear, with, uh, with a, a tuning fork. Right? If you have two tuning forks that are, that are similarly tuned, and you, and you hold them near each other, and you strike one, but you're not touching the other, well, the other will, will vibrate. It'll resonate with the other one. Uh, So it's sometimes called sympathetic vibration, sympathetic resonance. Christ resonates with us in our fallen humanity. The way that second piano, the way that second tuning fork resonates with the first one. When a note is struck in your human instrument, in your heart, your mind, your body, Jesus knows and feels the groaning vibrations. All of your painful notes resonate with him. And sometimes uh, it's not just that we were struck and then he resonates. He, he's sympathetic. He resonates because he also was struck, right? But when we're struck, he resonates. So apart from sin, there's no, there's no note of human pain, suffering experience that Christ hasn't known or felt in some way at some level that he can't sympathize with. Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So Jesus has unequaled capacity for sympathy. He doesn't just imagine how you feel. He actually has felt it or feels it. Oftentimes, you're under tremendous pressure. And you may think in those times that no one really understands. Maybe, maybe no one even really cares very deeply. No one seems to resonate with your with, with your dirges played in minor keys. That, that, you know, no, no one 
feels that the, the, the pain of your dissonant notes being played in your soul. Your life seems more like a cacophony than a symphony. And who cares? Is anybody hearing this? Anybody know what, what's going on? And yet there is one who cares for you more than you care for yourself, but who also has sympathetic resonance with you. He doesn't just care, he knows. He has that sympathetic vibration. The vibrations in your soul are matched with vibrations in his. So do you need sympathy? Do you want to talk to someone who knows and understands? Then turn to Christ. He knows the pain you bear and he understands it. He knows your temptations. He resonates with your dark nights of the soul. He's experienced your limitations and frustrations. And here's, here's some good news too. He doesn't despise you just because you don't handle life's pressures as well as he did. He didn't take on your humanity, our humanity, to, to look down on your human weakness and your failings, your shortcomings. That's not why he did it. He didn't, he didn't take on our nature to say, see, I can do it, why can't you? That's not his angle. He doesn't feel your groaning and then turn around and condemn you for not measuring up. That's exactly the opposite reason why he decided to take on your nature, your humanity, so that he could save you, so that he could rescue you from that condemnation. And, and the greatest evidence of Christ's tenderness and compassion toward you is that he became human to save you. That's, the, that's how we know. He sympathizes with you not just as a man, but also as a Savior who died for you. The angel told the shepherds in verse 10, Don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior. Christ the Lord. Christ became flesh and he identified with our humanity. He took on our nature. He sympathized with your cursed existence and he remained sinless his whole life so that he could save you from your sin. He learned obedience through the things that he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Hebrews 5, 8 and 9. For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever your situation, Jesus sympathizes with you and he can save you to the uttermost. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews 7, 24 and 25. The angels got to announce 
the arrival of the world's long-awaited Savior. And, and that, that must have been great. They were doing what God made them to do. But we humans have the best part in this story. Because we are the recipients of the grace that, these, that this angel was announcing. God didn't become an angel. He became a man. He didn't redeem angels. No, angels got redeemed. And there were a lot that, you know, that needed redemption. But he didn't come to save the angels. He redeemed us. So it's not enough to have warm sentiments about Jesus at Christmas time. As one preacher put it, religious sentiment without the living Christ is a yellow brick road to darkness. The real savior of the world was not Caesar Augustus, nor will any other great leader ever be anything like mankind's savior. Humanity's savior, your savior, is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, who came to earth veiled in Mary's flesh, who was born in human flesh, who did not consider his equality with God as something to be grasped or used for his, to his advantage, who lived in the flesh, who died in the flesh, who was raised to new life in that same flesh, and who now lives in his glorified flesh in heaven at the right hand of the Father. The incarnation is mysterious and glorious and wonderful, but it's real. It's real. Christ understands. He sympathizes because he shares your humanity. He, he identifies with you completely. He is a merciful and faithful and patient high priest who can save you maximally, to the uttermost, no matter who you are, no matter how frail you are, no matter how badly you've screwed up, no matter how evil you've been, no matter how far you've fallen. The Prince of Peace, the mighty God in that feeding trough came to sympathize with you and to save you. He came to feed you himself. Are you willing to be nourished by him? Do you hunger and thirst for anything more than you hunger and thirst for the living God who took on flesh? Why would you look for a savior or a salvation anywhere else? I'll close with Hebrews 2, 14 to 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were sub subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins 
of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for sending Jesus to become one of us, to live among us, to save us from our sin. And we pray again as we prayed last week that you would help us to love and treasure this good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of the Son of God. And we, we do pray that the, the wonder of Christmas, the wonder of the incarnation would not just be something that we meditate on during the season of Christmas, but that it would drive us and our thoughts, it would consume us, captivate us for the whole year. Help us, help us to reorient our hearts and our minds and to center them on this good news that the angels sang about and that we read about. We ask for this help in the name of Jesus and for his sake, amen.